Good Friday evening to all my fellow one-on-one history podcast listeners out there. I hope all of you have had a good week, and let alone we've made it through another uh, week, and hard to believe we're already into October. It definitely feels like fall in my neck of the woods, and I've already seen um, a fair abundance of uh, patches of uh, foliage in various spots, but it sure is nice to see that um, change in uh, leaf color, or in a multitude of leaf colors, I should say. So, um, we are now um, into the um, nitty-gritty of um, founding martyr, the life and death of Dr. Joseph Warren, the American Revolution's lost hero, written by Christian de Spigna. But then again, I think it's fair to say we've been in the, we've been in the nitty-gritty of stuff uh, for quite some time, but I think it's fair to say that it's uh, now gone to a higher level. What do I mean by higher level? Well... We've gone from learning about Joseph Warren making a lot of uh, very passionate uh, speeches about uh, independence from England, about taking a stand on unfair um, legislative uh, measures that have actually done you know more negative harm than good. You know now we've um, seen that um, our actions now have resulted in a uh, face-to-face um, skirmish or, or face-to-face skirmishes, for that matter, against uh, British troops out on the um, open field. That says a lot right there. I mean, we've already proven that we've uh, fired the first shots heard around the world, that we can go uh, head-to-toe with uh, the mightiest empire, but now that uh, conflict is going to um, it's going to go at a much different level. We've already seen four skirmishes. The two most famous ones are Lexington and Concord on um, April 19th of 1775, but there were two other smaller conflicts in the early parts of uh, May of 1775, which were uh, at Noddles Island as well as uh, Grape Island uh, right outside of uh, Weymouth where uh, the American forces, or let alone I should say the Patriot forces, um, held their ground and uh, were able to prevail. So, if you're on the British side, not just on the British side, but a loyalist, you've got a lot of questions to be asking. So our first bonus question will be this. In less than two months... What had the militia in Massachusetts achieved between April and May of 1775? Well, there's a a number of answers. One of them, for example, can be summed up best as saying the following. The Massachusetts militia had inflicted scores of casualties on British troops, as well as limiting their access to obtain food But most important of all, the militia had come up with a variety of different strategies on how to go about outsmarting General Thomas Gage's forces, given once again that the British military being the mightiest power in the world. So here we started off on the open, um, what do you call it, common um, field or the common uh, green gathering at Lexington, And while, yes, eight or nine men lost their lives, we still found a way in enough time before that uh, standoff in Lexington, thanks to Paul Revere, William Dawes, Sam Adams, John Hancock, 
to assemble so many other men from the various towns to get ready to um, take on uh, the mightiest uh, empire by the time the British leave Lexington and go to Concord. So that's where a multitude of different strategies come into play, as mentioned from the previous night's podcast. But given that Thomas Gage and his forces were limited in where they could mobilize, what were his best viable options? Well, here we go. He could move forces into high ground north and south of Boston into Charlestown and Dorchester Heights, which would give him access into the mainland. So basically he is... um, he and um, most of his men are surrounded just within the confines of Boston. But in order to um, mobilize better, they've got to go north and south of Boston. So on June 13th of 1775, the, com- the Massachusetts Committee of Safety learns from a top-level source that General Gage has planned on taking Bunker Hill and Dorchester Heights nearly five days after the 13th. That's the plan, which in this case would be June 18th. What is the highest point on the Charlestown Peninsula? Bunker Hill. Now, there's also Breed's Hill, which is adjacent to Bunker Hill. So, most of us know this upcoming battle as Bunker Hill... But believe it or not, it was not fought at Bunker Hill. I'm not sure why many people still refer to it as Bunker Hill. Maybe it's just because we've been told that the battle was fought there. But anyways, it was actually Breed's Hill that was selected as the primary fortification spot for the Patriot defense. It turns out that Breed's Hill was closer to Boston, and it had better and it had a better vantage point that allowed Patriot commanders to monitor incoming British forces. So, why not, you know, why not uh, go with the um, hill that has a better vantage point that allows you to see the opposition come, that allows you to see the opposition uh, making its way in, and given that it's closer to the city, you know, it's it's a good means to have um, access to the city in terms of uh, making it out um, depending on the outcome of the battle. Besides General Joseph Warren, whom were some other Patriot commanders and leaders whose presence would be known at Bunker Hill or a.k.a. Breed's Hill? They range from the following men, Generals Israel, General Israel Putnam, Colonel William Prescott, to Colonel Richard Gridley, who would be the head of artillery, as well as the chief engineer, to Colonel John Stark. Interesting enough, there is a town in New Hampshire called Stark, New Hampshire. What do you know? It's named in honor of Colonel John Stark. There is a place in Connecticut known as Putnam, Connecticut, named after General Israel Putnam, who got the unique nickname of Old Putt. 
Now, on midnight of June 17, 1775, Colonel Prescott, or let alone, I should say, William Prescott, leads the first, waves, the first wave of soldiers to Breed's Hill. Throughout, and throughout the night, his soldiers are digging ditches to building fortifications. This is a great way to be proactive in staying one step ahead of the British forces. Now, you know, it's one thing to fight the enemy in a battle, but if you want to reduce the number of would-be casualties, you've got to be creative. You don't want your men to be out there, um, you don't want your men to be sitting ducks. In other words, you don't want to send all your men out into the open field and walk into a line of fire and just start fighting. We have to remember this too, folks, that Breed's Hill, and I'll mention this down the road here, Breed's Hill is not, yes, some people say it's an open battlefield, but it's not a, um, it's not flat land. In other words, we're not just walking on flat land and um, facing our opponent uh, who could be 100 yards away, or I don't know, 100 yards, but not too far away. So, nonetheless, yes, by midnight on June 17, 1775, Colonel William Prescott has got his um, units um, doing a variety of things from digging ditches to building fortifications. If you want to, cur- if you want to minimize the number of casualties, you've got to be creative in throwing the opposition off. Now, before hostilities were to break out, what had Joseph Warren himself been doing? He attended a war council meeting in Cambridge, along with reviewing intelligence reports. This is a good way to to be proactive. It's also a good way to review anything that needs to be done at the last minute, because whatever happens out on the battlefield can make or break your success of becoming the victor. On June seventeenth, seventy on June seventeenth, seventeen seventy five. Or to believe that was 245 years ago, but indeed it was. Around dawn, and those, all of us know what dawn is, morning, whereas dusk is at evening. Around dawn, the first official battle for America's War of Independence begins. You know, we're so used to thinking that Lexington and Concord were the two battles. While, yes, they may have laid the cornerstone or a 101 foundation, what they really represented were the shots heard around the world. Bunker Hill is going to take Lexington and Concord well above 101. So, who's going to um, open the first uh, round of fire at Bunker Hill? I like to call it Bunker Hill. Yes, I know that... um, that the fortifications were at Breed's Hill, but hey, I've known known it as Bunker Hill all my life. Maybe it, it, it just sounds more, um, what do you call it, um, presentable than, say, Breed's Hill. So anyways, um, who's going to launch the first uh, shots? It's going to be the British. Where are they launching their shots from, or their fire? They launch a consistent stream of cannon fire toward Patriot lines 
on the Charles from the Charlestown Peninsula from a fortification at Copps Hill in Boston's North End, as well as from warships within Boston Harbor. The firing of the cannon was so intense and gruesome, and Colonel William Prescott, and I kid you not, people, I mean, this, if you think ordinary cannon firing is bad enough wait till you get a, wait till you hear what colonel william prescott said about it i paraphrased what he said in my own words as follows colonel prescott on the patriot side witnessed one fellow soldier nearby get killed by cannonball which struck him in the head now, is that not horrifying? If any of you all don't think that's horrifying, then I don't know what is. And we're not talking about a three-pounder. For all we know, this could have been a six-pounder or more. But that's not to say a three-pounder could have done damage. It could have hurt someone. But the bottom line is, is that the cannons, they're not the size of bullets, but they are their own version of bullets. And if you get near a cannonball, even on an open battlefield, you could lose a limb, most notably your, your foot or part of your leg. But nonetheless, Colonel Prescott was covered by some of this man's own blood. To me, that is, um, that's horrifying to know that you are covered in someone else's own blood. But for Colonel William Prescott, do you think that's going to stop him from, from uh, not backing down? No, it shouldn't. After all, he should, um, he, he should um, keep fighting because the man who died, who was struck by cannon, would have wanted Colonel Prescott to be, fi to be fighting. So, the question is this. Were the Patriots outnumbered in size, that is, the number of troops, as well as ammunition? Yes. But the Patriot forces still managed to hold their position, or let alone, I should say, their ground. I'll let you all know here in a moment. Matter of fact, we're going to be stumbling upon the question now, so you won't have to wait. I guess that's a good thing. How many men were on the Patriot-slash-Rebel side whom fought at Bunker Hill? That answer is 2,400 men. Now, were all of these men from Massachusetts? Uh, the answer is no. There were men whom hailed from New Hampshire, Connecticut, and Rhode Island. I think there is a common um, thread here, or let alone, I should say, a, um, a common nationality. Why nationality? Because all four of the, col of the colonies that I've mentioned, or rather I should say the other three colonies besides Massachusetts that I mentioned, all four of those colonies are, are, represent uh, New England, the New England region. So think about it. All four of these colonies have something in common, and that is they want to, um, they want to prove to the king's army, that they are not afraid to back down from a, an intense fight.
Now, how many men were available on the British side? That answer is 3,000. The British have 600 more men to the Patriots, who have 2,400. Now, just because you may have 600 more men doesn't mean that you're going to not have any trouble or let alone, should I say, do you think it's going to be a cakewalk to put down the opposition just because you have 600 more men? I would be very, very um, hesitant on saying yes because we're going to find out here soon what results are going to um, emerge despite the uh, 600-man gap between the British and the um, Patriots. British commanders and leaders, or let alone I should say the British commanders and the leaders who um, participate in this battle are none other than Thomas Gage, William, Generals William Howe, Henry Clinton, Samuel Graves, John Pitcairn, Sir Robert Pigott to James Abercrombie. I don't know if James Abercrombie is connected to Abercrombie and Fitch, but um, but of course Abercrombie and Fitch is very irrelevant because it doesn't exist in 18th century times, so we're not going to get ahead of the game. <laughs> so a good bonus question I'm going to ask you is this. Given the barrage of cannon fire, which had failed to break the Patriots' line of defense, what did the British embark on next? The soldiers in Boston went about from the long wharf to the docked vessels that would transport them across the Charles River. So how many boats are going to transport the first wave of armed troops? Twenty-eight. Now, I don't suspect that these boats, I would suspect these boats probably could have catered maybe 10 or 12 troops at best, maybe 15 to 20. It depends on how big the the boats are. But think about it. If you want to get easy and quick access over to where your destination is and you have viable access by water, take advantage of water. You know, we're so used to learning about how troops would have had to have uh, walked out in open terrain or in the backwoods, which there was nothing wrong with. But we do forget that troops did have, depending on where they were fighting, if they were fighting near the coast, why not use access, why not use your waterway access to get you to the mainland so that you can go about uh, getting to your destination that is by land. So, once the troops, or let alone I should say the British troops, arrive to the um, beachfront that is below the hill, the uphill terrain that the British are faced with is not just a, an arduous challenge for um, marching up the hill, but they have but they now realize that they are about that they are ready to march into a slaughter field. What do you mean by slaughter field? Well, they don't have any means of uh, protection. What they see all the way at the top of the hill is a um, is a brilliant constructed means of uh, fortified um, safety on our part.
we have the proper safety resources. They don't. However, this is where I see a bit of hubris. What I mean by hubris is too much pride and arrogance on the part of British leadership. They are flat out convinced that they can find whatever way there is possible to break our lines. So the British leaders and generals have made it very clear to their troops that if anyone quits, that executions would occur without any mercy whatsoever. Okay? You're going to put your own men in harm's way just to try to um, do something that in the eyes of the patriots and even to the outside world is suicidal. I mean, they're walking into an open slaughterhouse. I wouldn't risk it. But then again, if I wasn't the head general, I probably would have gotten overridden for my views. So, why was Patriot Colonel John Stark's role significant? Well, given that he was a veteran of the French and Indian War, he had led his New Hampshire forces over in enough time. So, in other words, they came over really at the last minute to where they could help prevent a British flank. What is a flank? That is a surprise ambush attack. In other words, a, a flank attack could occur from the left or from the right. It's basically an attack where one, where the opposition's line from either angle is left unprotected, and it's left so unprotected that, that uh, the enemy can come from behind, it can come from the rear. In other words, there's, there's not enough uh, defensive measures to keep in place to where... Um, to where you end up being uh, not just vulnerable, but outsmarted. So, it turns out that uh, Colonel uh, Stark had 13 companies under his command, but he came in enough time to get this um, line of uh, defense set up to where um, no flank surprise attack could occur. I, th I think that's remarkable. Let's remember this too, folks. In the 18th century, we don't have helicopters uh, transporting uh, soldiers, so therefore uh, none of these troops are, have parachutes with them. Many of these men on the uh, Patriot side have just about any kind of um, weaponry that they can um, afford to have with them that is part of their livelihood. Uh, so in other words, they have a musket, if, if some of them have a rifle, more power to them because a rifle is a lot more expensive than a musket. Some men probably had pistols with them. Now, pistols are lightweight uh, guns, but hey, if you didn't have a rifle or a musket and you had a pistol, that was still pretty valuable. It was better than nothing. And then there were men who had fowlers, which were your um, hunting guns. But remember, folks, Whatever you had with you, it was acceptable. And the bottom line is, if you could fire into the opposition and knock a, a soldier or two down, or more than just two soldiers, then you were good to go. Well, um, I think this is a very um, important um, matter here. 
Did many of uh, Joseph Warren's dearest friends try to talk him out of participating in this battle? Yes. But Joseph Warren himself was on a mission and knew where his place was, a.k.a. the battlefield. Warren was very familiar with this terrain as he had grown up in the area his entire life. I have no doubts that um, men like Paul Revere and perhaps John Hancock might have talked him out of um, not uh, going. But I do personally believe why Joseph Warren felt different. Remember, remember, folks, Joseph Warren has overseen just about everything. He's been on every committee, every leadership committee there is. And he has um, basically, he's like his own governor. He has over, he's overseen all the political, economic, social, military affairs. Think about it. If you've overseen everything, why would you want to take a, a back seat this man's not afraid. This man knows that if he allowed intimidation to get the better of him, he might be frowned upon as a coward. As a matter of fact, as I had said from a, a much earlier podcast when we first started talking about Dr. Joseph Warren, before his father died, he so much wanted his four sons to get the best education there was. I would imagine that Joseph's three younger brothers got a good education because Joseph himself went to Roxbury Latin School and he went to Harvard. Joseph Warren's father was quoted as saying this, I would rather a son of mine be dead than be a coward. In other words, I would rather a son of mine at least make every effort to make a name of himself, make every effort to, um, to embark on goals that um, that became um, accomplished and not only just became accomplished, but used those talents in everyday settings. In other words, the elder Warren, who was none other than Joseph Warren, what we might think of as Joseph Warren Sr., he didn't want any of his sons to leave anything on the table, but he also didn't want them to waste their talents. In other words, okay, if you're going to die, please don't die wasting everything that you had worked so hard to attain, but don't waste any of your God-given talents. As they say, even on, not to get ahead of the game, but even on TV commercials, I have seen from time to time where it is true. The mind is a terrible thing to waste. We're all given, um, very unique talents. And I know for a fact that one of my talents is not just appreciating history, but by telling, but by sharing with you all, my podcast listeners, what I enjoy learning most with history in terms of the American Revolution, as well as other unique historical uh, subjects that fascinate me. But the bottom line is, is that I have a lot of information that I can share with all of you. And by doing that, I'm contributing to the greater society as a whole for all the right reasons. So therefore, uh, to, answer, to, to answer the question, yes, many of Joseph Warren's friends would not have wanted him to put his life at risk 
But somebody had to do the job. Somebody had to be a leader out there. I'm not saying that the other patriot leaders I mentioned were good leaders. They were. But there needed to be another um, dimensional. There needed to be another dimension who, of um, leadership that was so essential that day. So, we'll, And we'll talk a little bit more about Joseph Warren's leadership here soon. But come 3 o'clock in the afternoon on June 17th of 1775, the first wave of British light infantry and grenadiers, light infantry folks, remember, they're the ones that carry lightweight equipment. They are the ones that are capable of, um, of uh, harassing and um, throwing the opposition um, out of line, whereas the grenadiers are your, or your what do you call it, stronger uh, soldiers who uh, will carry more equipment and and engage more in hand-to-hand combat fighting. Remember, folks, they're the ones that throw the gr- grenades. That's where we get grenadiers from. So basically, the first wave of British light infantry and grenadiers march upward to get in position to attack the Patriot forces, but they are driven back by a heavy barrage of fire from rifles and muskets under John, under Colonel John Stark's command. And Colonel Stark said the following after the first barrage. The dead lay as thick as sheep in a fold. How can one best describe that uh, remark by Colonel John Stark? This is how I respond to it. So many dead soldiers lied upon one another to where it was equivalent to sheep congregating in a herd, or let alone, I should say, a mass herd. Large numbers of dead soldiers were surrounded next to one another. In other words, they they were piled upon each other, it seemed. And sheeps, when they gather in a large herd, they all are clustered side by side. Well, that's how Colonel John Stark saw it with all these dead soldiers who were mowed down by his men's firing. So many of them were um, neatly lined up that um, once his sol- that once Stark's soldiers fired, it was like a domino effect. They all went down at once. Now, did Joseph Warren's presence at Breed's Hill give the troops a boost in morale? Yes. How so? Well, his, lead, his presence helped prevent any retreats from happening. Now, I don't believe that uh, Colonel John Stark or any of the other leaders like William Prescott would have made that mistake. But given that Joseph Warren is such a prominent figure to the Patriots, I think it's good just to have him by to serve as a reminder that, hey, if we do expect a barrage of cannon fire from the British, don't retreat and don't run, you know, like a chicken with your head cut off trying to cross the side of the road. You better hold your ground because once it's your turn, you give them bloody hell. And that's what happened on that first assault. Because if it didn't happen, then Colonel Stark would not have said that so many dead soldiers lied upon one. He wouldn't have said that the the dead lay as thick as sheep in in a fold. 
So, um, many troops also saw Warren as someone who appeared invincible, especially given the risk he was taking now, given his status was that of general. What does invincible mean? Well, invincible means that um, that a person could be seen anywhere. It's an, it could be another word for ubiquitous, but it just means that um, no matter how odd or difficult a circumstance might be, that person is never going to give up. That person is still going to be present and give everything he or she has until they know that they've um, given it their all. Well, that's Joseph Warren for you. And how did the Patriots, I'm sure many of y'all are wondering, I've mentioned it already in terms of a fortification, but how are the Patriots defending themselves at Breed's Hill? They hid behind the makeshift trenches and barricades. Well, think about it. You've got to find a way to keep yourself from not being a sitting duck or an open target, so you've got to find ways to maneuver around these trenches. What is a redoubt? A redoubt is a fort, or I should say a fort system that comprises an enclosed defensive structure that is meant to protect soldiers outside the primary defensive lines. Basically, a redoubt is a place of retreat, almost like a place of shelter, um, a makeshift shelter where you can uh, hide uh, without um, being um, torn to pieces out in the open. Patriot forces were maneuvering from every angle and corner of the redoubt, but would fire on British soldiers once they were within 50 yards of the redoubt. And I think that's smart, folks, because it's one thing to, to um, position yourself. It's one thing to ha listen to the command that says take aim and then fire. But if the, but if, uh, the soldiers on the Patriot side had fired within a 100-yard range or more, I don't think they would have been able to have um, mowed down as many British troops. But once the British had made it to about 50 yards of the redoubt, that's where all hell really broke loose. And that's where we were at our finest moment. So did the Patriots succeed firing at British soldiers within, within the 50-yard range from their position surrounding the redoubt fortification? Yes, Joseph Warren himself encouraged the soldiers to fire directly at British officers with one lethal volley followed by another. The results emerged as the opposition, regardless of their rank, were mowed down at rapid speed. You know, it used to be at one time that, in the eyes of the British, killing an officer was very treasonous, or it, or it was not just so much treasonous, it was unacceptable. In their eyes, the soldiers should be more concerned about killing the soldiers, but to kill an officer was a, um, was not a, which, in their eyes, a very gentlemanly thing to do. But if you're Joseph Warren and Colonel John Stark and, and Colonel William Prescott and, and General Israel Putnam, do you really think you, pardon my French for saying this, but do you really think you, you, you're going to give a damn about that um, 
proper British protocol etiquette when it comes to fighting on the battlefield? Heck no. You want to send a message to the mightiest empire in the world out on the military field that, hey, look, we don't care what your rank is, but, but we'll put up a fight with you. And if it means mowing down a couple of your colonels uh, to, uh, to a few generals, to uh, lieutenant colonels, we'll do it. And then you'll get to have a taste of your own medicine to know what it's like to, um, to be the, um, what do you call it, to be the victim because we've been the ones who've been oppressed for so long. Now it's our turn to exact revenge. I know this could sound a bit barbaric. It might sound um, hateful, but we have to remember this too. We've got to put ourselves in the Patriot's shoes in 1775, we are showing the British that, okay, we may not have the finest of clothing on to fight in a battlefield. And yes, we might be a bunch of ragtag men, but we sure as hell know how to fire our muskets and fowlers, pistols, rifles. We know how to do this. We've seen military combat before from the French and Indian War. We've already fought you in four other uh, battles. So why not go for number five? Why not go for, as my best friend would say, uh, one of my friends says, uh, one for the thumb. Why not go for that? So, one soldier had said the following, and this is in quotes, our first fire was shockingly fatal, and that was on the Patriot side. In other words, the British were totally off guard to where they didn't have any solutions on how to counterattack right back. They were sitting ducks in an open field of fire. And believe it or not, there would be a second wave of firing on the British troops from within 50 yards, and this one was also successful as the it was just as successful as the first firing. More troops continued to fall, but the but the um, but there would be more suspense to follow. So remember, so just take this into consideration. Here, the British are walking into a line of fire, sitting ducks, and remember, their officers already said from the get-go. If any of you all. Um, you know, chicken out. If any of you all start running, crying because you're scared, you'll be executed. Basically, there's no mercy. They they are so angry at the fact that they have lost four. They've lost that they've lost. They they may have gotten the upper hand at, at Lexington, but they lost at Concord. They've lost at these other battles. They don't like the fact that within two months. Everything has been turned upside down. They thought the Americans would be the laughing stock on the battlefield. They have now come to realize that they are the ones now who are the laughing stock. Was the Patriot Army comprised of diverse peoples? What do I mean by diverse peoples? Well, you have veterans from the French and Indian War to ordinary, average, everyday, um, average Joe men to farmers, even 
and this also includes free African Americans. All of these men were responsible for killing a handful of distinguished British officers. And after the second assault, many British leaders became stunned and horrified by witnessing a large number of their own men shot down with a variety of pieces ranging from the muskets, the fowlers, rifles, to pistols. Okay, well, if you are that horrified, if you're a British officer, and, you, and if you're that horrified by what you have just witnessed, wouldn't you have enough common sense to say, okay, let's surrender, let's, um, let's say, let, let's, let's surrender, and let's um, save what we have left and save our forces to fight for another day. Now, I know I just mentioned a moment ago that the British officers early on said that if anybody uh, were to retreat and anybody were to um, get out of line, that they would be executed. If I were a British officer right now, I would be changing my mind in a heartbeat and saying, you know what? forget the execution, we need to uh, regroup and we need to surrender now. How many more men do we want to lose? What's the price that's worth paying? Well, unfortunately, I wasn't alive in 1775 to make that call. But if I was a British officer, I would have uh, been screaming bloody murder to, those, to my superior commanders above me to say, hey, look, uh, we need to turn around and we need to um, conserve what's left of our, of our men uh, because this is a no-win situation. Nearly a thousand British men at this point have let lie dead or wounded after the second failed attempt to reach the Patriots' readout. So my question now is this. Would there be a third frontal assault attack on Breed's Hill, or a.k.a. Bunker Hill, by the British? Surprisingly, yes, and it would come at a terrible expense. And how so? Well, for starters, the Patriots were finally beginning to run out of ammunition at the start of the third assault charge only to be encountered by two British Marine companies with the portion of the 47th Regiment, whom all had 17-inch bayonets fixed to their muskets. Now, folks, you all know what a bayonet is. I just mentioned it uh, briefly, a description, a 17-inch bayonet, or let alone 17-inch bayonets. Well, I, I do know this. Bayonets come from, um, the term itself derives from um, Bayonne, France. And the reason why it's from Bayonne, France is because that's where bayonets were first um, introduced. For those of you who aren't 100% familiar with a bayonet, I can tell you this much. Think of a bayonet is like a, uh, a long stick with a very, very severe pointy edge on the top of it. Um, a pointy edge like the shape of a triangle. Not a true triangle, but, or more what I should say, like an arrowhead tip. 
you attach this uh, thing um, to the um, yes to the side of your musket, and usually when a bayonet is used, it is to finish off the opposition who has already been soundly routed. But you want to give them that last means of intimidation. And what, from what I've learned by having visited Colonial Williamsburg and other unique places that involve Revolutionary War history, is that um, more often than not, the British were the ones that were, were more experienced with bayonets. They would attach their bayonets onto their rifle, and they would use this at about the 50-yard range to finally just scare, not just scare off, but to um, annihilate what was left of the opposition. And more often than not, they had success. But I can't imagine what it would be like to be stabbed in the stomach by the enemy not just by the enemy, but by an enemy soldier with a 17-inch bayonet. I cannot imagine what torture that must have felt like. So when you see a bayonet, whether it's a reenactment or, uh, or a TV program or documentary, when you see that bayonet, that's a very, very um, dangerous um, means of, um, it's a good means for defense, but it's also a dangerous means of defense when it comes to uh, exacting um, pain on your enemy. So that's what happened, and the Patriot Redoubt would be attacked, it would, it would be attacked from three sides at once. General William Howe led the right portion, and Sir Robert Pigott attacked the southern and eastern edges. And I'm sure many of you are now wondering, how could we have uh, run out of ammunition? Well, I think it's fair to say that after the second frontal attack, that the British would have had enough common sense to have retreated. And had they done that, there's still, we still would have had some ammunition left. I don't think anybody thought in their wildest dreams that, um, that the battle would have been this intense. On the other hand, you have to wonder, what if we had another 300 or 400 men? That could have made a difference right there. That probably could have made enough difference to have emerged victorious from a third frontal assault preparation against a, an incoming foe who's already been depleted as it is after two failed attempts. So, I hate to tell you this, folks, but this is what happened. Once the Redcoats made their way into the redoubt, it was nothing but absolute carnage. Men from each side stabbed and clubbed one, one another to death. Those who ran out of ammunition on the Patriot side resorted to throwing stones to using their fists against the Redcoats. Well, shoot, if I ran out of ammunition, then yes, I probably would not have known any better than to start hurling stones to taking my fists and knocking a Redcoat down. Now, who's to say that I probably would have survived? Maybe not, but at least you're not going to um, lose without any excuses. At least you're not going to walk away being a coward. 
That's what Joseph Warren instilled in his men. He didn't want them to be cowards. The same for generals is General Israel Putnam, Colonel John Stark, and William Prescott. These men had a, a very, very grand plan. It's just a shame they ran out of ammunition. So this is where um, the level of uh, barbarity um, becomes even um, worse. Did Joseph Warren try to rally his forces one more time? Yes, but many of his men couldn't muster another round due to being wounded, as well as running out of ammunition. But, many of, but some of these men now start to feel overwhelmed by the British because of the bayonet assault charge. And I could see how you would have been very overwhelmed. You've already um, managed to put away two attempted, uh, failed attempt um, assaults on the redoubt. I think it would be very hard to muster up enough courage when you know that your resources are now limited given that you've run out of ammunition. Well, how are you going to um, escape all this um, melee? In other words, how are you going to escape all the terror? Well, in order to avoid being shot or taken prisoner, how did those on the Patriot side manage to escape? Well, many of these men escaped by means of shouting and screaming. Think about it. They just couldn't run. Many of these men, yes, when they saw the British charging at them with bayonets, yeah, I would think that you would be running and screaming in fear for not only your own safety, but the safety of others, your survival. So, by escaping, they were shouting and screaming as they were getting across the Charlestown Neck into Cambridge because it was the only route or way of retreat. And some Patriot soldiers were forced to crawl over the corpses of dead soldiers in order to avoid being shot. Think about it, folks. Nobody had a free exit route. Even after the those Patriot survivors who had fought so valiantly only to watch their own fellow men get shot. They literally had to walk over their own men's, their own, their own comrades' corpses just to survive. Now that had to have been a frightening sight. Remember, folks, war is not a game. We should all know that, but it's not. War itself has sacrifices, those men who uh, died at Bunker Hill on our side paid, us, paid a huge price, but for all the right reasons. They were fighting not only for their own freedom, but they were fighting for their own family's freedoms. They are also fighting for the future, not just the present, but the future. Was Joseph Warren wounded? Yes, he was. Did he purposely stay behind to ensure that every other Patriot soldier had made it to safety? Yes. Would he be the last man to leave the redoubt? Yes. Is it fair to say that Warren himself had a tendency of deliberately putting himself in harm's way? Yes. Was he okay with having this tendency? I would say yes. If he wasn't okay with it, why would he have gone out? 
Remember, as I said earlier, what his late father had said years earlier, I would rather a son of I would rather have a son of mine be dead than be a coward. So what would have been the cowardly thing? What would if Joseph Warren was afraid to take a stand on how the British had been treating the colonists, most notably those in Massachusetts, if he was afraid to take a stand, why would he why should he even be out on the battlefield? If you're going to have a, if you're going to take a stand in other um, arenas, then you better be able to take a stand on a battlefield. And not to get ahead of of history, but I like this. I I see Joseph Warren's leadership is something that strikes very similar to what President John Fitzgerald Kennedy said in his inaugural speech in 1961. Ask not, my fellow citizens, ask not what your country can do for you, ask what you can do for your country. Did Joseph Warren ask the delegates at the, at the Second uh, Continental Congress what he could or couldn't do? No. He had to take matters into his own hands by seeing to it that his men were protected and that his men were not going to back down. So that's a great example right there of where Joseph Warren didn't ask others what he could do for the people of Massachusetts. He knew from the get-go what he needed to do for the people of Massachusetts to ensure to ensure their um, political, economic, and um, to ensure that their political, economic, and social settings or environmental settings were safe, not just in the present but in the future. They may have been um, unpleasant given the uh, British treatment, but who else is going to stand up? Who's, who else is going to take a stand and say enough is enough and put up a grand fight that would result in giving everything there was in mowing down British soldiers? I'm sure there you could have had someone else, but would that other person have been just as good as Joseph Warren? We'll never know. But sadly... I don't know how to tell you all this, but I'll tell it to you now. The Battle of Bunker Hill is where Joseph Warren's luck would run out. The British, British forces, I'm not sure how many sol- soldiers on their sh- side shot him, but Joseph Warren was shot. He was struck just under his left eye by a fatal shot that ripped through his face. And the wound itself exited the back of his head. People, this is scary. This was no... um, Joseph Warren did not die. He didn't die like a cowboy would have in those old cowboy and Indians movies or westerns. 
he didn't have the luxury of dying and dying to the ground. And, and, and what I mean by luxury of dying is that when he died, he didn't have the luxury that the cowboys or the bad guys would have from the cowboy and Indian movies or the old westerns that are that my parents would have grown up with from the 50s and the 60s. In other words, when they saw those movies, they didn't see uh, the bad guy die with blood oozing all around him. When he was shot, he was shot. Joseph Warren didn't have that luxury. I can only imagine having witnessed his, um, his death. And if you think his being shot was horrifying enough, I have no other choice but to tell you how he, how he was treated after being shot in the face. And how Christian de Spigna um, describes his, um, his death, it is horrifying. You know, to think, it's one thing to be shot, but to, have, to be shot just below one of your eyes and that fatal shot rips through your face and exits the and exited in his case the back of his head in some ways it almost reminds me of how president kennedy was assassinated i mean i don't mean to get off track but but after having read the description of how joseph warren was shot it just reminds me in some ways of how president kennedy was assassinated When I and when I've I've seen the Zapruder film hundreds of times, and of course that's a whole other subject for another time. But after watching how President Kennedy was assassinated, seeing that bullet um, rip through um, the parietal section of his brain and exit out of out, exit out the back, and his witnesses said. They saw his head wound as being the size of a baseball. That's pretty horrifying. And there again, that was no John Wayne cowboy gun that shot President Kennedy. So it's very easy to assume that bullets are always the same size and that bullets, no matter where they're fired from, they will do damage, but they won't do severe damage. I would have to um, strongly oppose that. So, Joseph Warren has, is fatally shot. Shortly after he is fatally shot, a British soldier surrounded Warren's body and began stabbing it to death with a bayonet. Now to me that's very barbaric. But the British know about Joseph Warren. They've known about him for some time. They know that he is, the, he is public enemy number one on their list. So if you're the British... I don't really think you're going to care at this point how Joseph Warren dies. As long as you know that he's been shot, he's, he's taken out of his prime. 
And now the British know that, okay, we've, we've killed Joseph Warren. Uh, the Patriots don't have anybody else who can take his place. Despite having inflicted many casualties upon Britain,